Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. The Jewish community throughout the world will gather together shortly to observe and celebrate the holiday known as Purim. And the central aspect of this holiday is the reading of the Scroll of Esther. This morning, I want to speak to you about the Scroll of Esther and the holiday of Purim, and in a few moments, invite a guest to join me on the show. You know, after the defeat of the Nazis, more than 1,600 Torah scrolls came to London's Westminster Synagogue from Prague. Many were damaged, but they had somehow survived the destruction which had overtaken their communities. When Rabbi Solomon Freehoff was consulted regarding their use in synagogues, he cited the ancient rabbinic tradition that all depends on fate, even the sacred writings. Some scrolls are fortunate, live happy lives, and partake in joyous occasions. Others' scrolls suffer, but all scrolls are sacred. Half a century ago, Jacob Hochschander had applied this traditional maxim to the scroll of Esther, Megillat Esther. He felt that fate and modern scholarship had been unkind to this text, which itself recorded a people caught in the web of fate. Fate and the scholars were unkind to the Megillah. Robert Pfeiffer considered the scroll of Esther a brilliant hoax used to reinforce patriotism in Maccabean times. Oddly enough, he echoes the Dutch philosopher Spinoza here. And in a very famous text, Schaus's Jewish Festivals, Schaus writes, it has no religious content and can arouse no pious thought. That at least can be challenged. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, commenting on Haman's dying the death he had planned for Mordechai, cries out in his books, The Antiquities, Antiquities, that he cannot forbear to admire God and learn hence his wisdom and his justice. Today, of course, we do not accept Hochlacher's stance that this book records actual historical events, or at least many Jews don't accept this. But we will find that it leads us into history. The, de- the events described in the scroll of Esther, if not historically verifiable, are paradigms of historical events which have plagued the Jewish people in every era. There is a certain people scattered, the book begins, among the peoples of your kingdom. Their laws are different. It is not in the king's interest to tolerate them, says chapter 3, verse 8. These are words and the ranting cry that the Jewish community have heard over and over again. Every generation has seen the events described in the scroll of Esther, Migilat Esther, the persecution, the destruction, and the occasional deliverance. Purim celebrations in Prague or in Frankfurt exerted the truth of this narrative for other times and places, but all depends on fate. We have shared the dark fate which befell the scrolls of our time. That is why we can read the scroll of Esther with greater understanding. There is a certain coincidence in the scroll of Esther which compels reflection. 
In this book, there emerges an emphasis on Jewish identity, as Jewish national identity, ethnic identity, if you will. The word Jew emerges in the scroll in a very definite way. The book thus presages the secular view of Jewry, which was to emerge in modern times. At the same time, in correspondence with it, the name of God does not appear, even when we would expect it. At the very moment when Mordechai, the protagonist, says in effect to Esther, the female actor of major proportion, if you did not help us, help will come to us from... And we would expect the word God, the text says, no. Help will come to us from another place. As if this omission of the use of the divine reference is deliberate. As if a secularist were in fact writing the book. The scroll of Esther does not mention the name of God. There were times when our people experienced the absence of God as if the God upon whom our people had called in ancient times had become silent, as if God were now absent and a secular view of identity emerges. In a time of unbelief, we Jews are more open to secular texts, which does not mention God, but is still aware, as the book of Exeter says, deliverance will come to the Jews from another place. In a time of silence, we understand why prayer does not accompany fasting, why the emphasis is on the action that must arise out of the people itself. To offer another opinion on the scroll of Esther, I've invited Rabbi Mendel Bloom of the Ottawa Torah Society uh, to join me this morning and uh, join me in conversation about the scroll of Esther and the holiday of Purim. Good morning, Rabbi Bloom. Good morning, good morning. Thank you for joining us on Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you for having me. I've introduced um, a more academic approach to the scroll of Esther to our listeners this morning, but I'm wondering if uh, you could share with our listeners how you uh, understand the historicity and uh, factual nature of the scroll of Esther. Okay. Um, so the the scroll of Esther, as uh, as is written towards the end of it, was a letter, um, a scroll that uh, Mordechai and Esther, who played a pivotal role in the story, um, decided to write uh, at the end of the uh, the the story, um, so that generations uh, year after year would remember. Uh, exactly what uh, what happened, and they would celebrate uh, with the different rituals that they instituted as well. So the Book of Esther um, was written by Esther and, and Mordechai. Um, who, for those who may not know, are the main characters of the story. Mordechai and Esther are uncle and niece, according to the story. Correct. Living in ancient poor in ancient Persia. That's correct. They living in ancient Persia about uh, four hundred BCE. Um, it was after the destruction of the first temple, uh, 
Um, this is, you know, about 50 years after the destruction. Uh, and in fact, the Persian Empire, who took over dominion of, you know, uh, that part of the world and actually the world at large, um, conquered the, the Babylonians and were actually holding some of the tr temple treasures, uh, which is how the Megillah opens up with a great feast of the Persian king who now felt secure in his, uh, in his rule and uh, makes a feast for 180 days and invites his entire the entire world, practically, he ruled for he ruled over 127 lands. So, from a traditional uh, point of view, the Megillah is historical. Uh, it was written by the very people who participated in the story, and it's a story that we recount every year to remember this uh, tremendous time in history where we're we're basically celebrating the survival of the Jewish people. So um, I just want to clarify some of the history that you've mentioned for our listeners. The first temple was destroyed by the Babylonian Empire in 586 uh, before the Common Era. Correct. And um, the Jews were basically exiled to Babylonia. There may have been a small remnant left in Judea, uh, but mostly they were all exiled. And it would not be until the Persians conquered the Babylonian Empire and established their own authority that during the time of Ezra, some 80 years later, the Persians under Cyrus would allow um, those who wish to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the second temple. And so this story, as you've indicated, uh, purports to take place between the time that the Persian Empire um, defeated the Babylonians and the time that Cyrus um, allowed a small segment of the Jewish population to return to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Good. And as you share the story with members of your community uh, next Wednesday, what will you be highlighting for your community out of this story? So uh, one of the um, one of the very interesting elements of this scroll, um, as opposed to you know many other uh, scrolls that made it into the uh, the biblical set, um, the this is one scroll that doesn't have God's name in it. God's name is not even mentioned once. Um, and in fact, you could read the story. And uh, the story could sound like a very natural story. Um, there was a minister that wanted to annihilate the Jewish people. Uh, the queen was Jewish. She speaks to her husband, the king, and the uh, king makes sure it doesn't happen. And so we celebrate. And it, it could be looked at as, you know, just natural events that are taking place. But once you start uh, studying the details and really learning about the plot of what is going on through the story of Purim, you see that it's really the hand of God. There is no coincidence. It's really the hand of God that is working through this story in a hidden way um, 
in fact, the scroll in Hebrew is called Megillat Esther, the scroll of Esther. Um, the word Megillat, scroll, also means in Hebrew, revelation, gilui. Uh, so, and Esther means the concealed. So the story of the, the Purim story is really, once we take a deeper look at uh, the events that were happening, starting from the feast of Ahasuerus, uh, the Persian king, all the way to the end of the scroll, uh, although God's name is not mentioned, but we could see that God's plan uh, is happening hidden within nature. I'm really glad that you offered that uh, interpretation. I began by reminding our listeners that God's name um, does not appear in Migilat Esther, uh -huh. and some people think that it's a story simply identifying um, events for which there was no purposeful beginning, middle, or end. Uh -huh. And it was events that simply le are left to the fates. So the Jews are um, presented as living fairly well within Persia, and then suddenly um, a minister by the name of Haman rises to power who um, wants to do them harm. Um, and Mordechai and Esther, according to the story, uh, save the Jews. Right. Um, but that would be the, only the superficial understanding of the text. You've asked uh, our listeners, and you will tell your congregation, that using a little homiletics to understand the meaning of the words Migilat Esther um, help us understand that this is purposeful. Correct. Uh, in the um, lack of God's overt uh, name being mentioned, but rather to help the reader understand that God is always present in every event, mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. if you don't see it um, in a very miraculous way. Correct. Correct. It's a wonderful lesson about the story that God acts in hidden ways, mm. and it's only through um, faith and commitment that we train our eyes to see God's presence in the world. Correct. Which is interesting, because when you look at uh, the reaction of uh, Esther, the queen, when she finds out of this plot that, uh, that Haman has, to uh, annihilate the Jewish people, uh, the first thing she does, she gathers the Jewish people. She tells Mordechai to gather the Jewish people to fast and to pray, uh, recognizing that, yes, she's going to use her connection and speak to the king, but first they're going to uh, recommit and rededicate themselves to their relationship with God because ultimately, deep down, this is God's hand that is leading us um, to our destiny. Um, we have a hand in it, but sometimes in the coincidences and in the different events that are going on in life, uh, we don't recognize how God's hand is really uh, leading us to, um, to where we're supposed to go. And Esther, who appears to be... Um what should we say, um, an assimilated uh, Jew, one who does not necessarily present herself as um, highly identified uh, 
then um, but that's not from a midrashic uh, point of view. A traditional point of view is that Esther actually was a fully practicing Jew, right? Um, who actually uh, observed Shabbat in the king's palace. Um, there's a lot of uh, midrashic inter- interpretation uh, that that uh, speak to that to that fact. Uh, yes, she wasn't. She was the queen, and she entered that uh, situation. And here again, it's viewed as you know it was it was a, a, an opportunity for her to play an important role. Um, but there is definitely the sense as well that she was committed to who she was. Right. So I'll just read from um, uh, chapter four, verse twelve. Mm-hmm. And they told Esther the words to Mordechai. Um, Then Mordechai commanded them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you of all the Jews will escape because you are in the king's house. Mm -hmm. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another place. And perhaps we can chat about this phrase, from another place. But you and your father's house will be destroyed, and who knows whether you have not come into the royal estate for such time as this. Then Esther bade them return this answer to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews that are in Shushan, this province, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my maidens will also fast. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish." Um, so here she seems, though at the beginning of the story, not to be um, very interested in her connection to the Jewish people. Um, you're suggesting that the tradition holds that she was always very interested. And this is just a reflection. This, these few verses I read is a reflection. Correct. Um, of her commitment to the Jewish people. Um, even if she was living in what we would call exile. Correct. And I know that um, as a scholar of Torah, you have an interesting interpretation of this phrase um, that deliverance will come from some other place. Um, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance would come to the Jews from another place. Right. We might have expected to uh, see the name of Hashem, of God, inserted there. Correct. Um, But um, we don't. Um, We have a a different kind of um, phraseology. Um, And how do you understand that terminology uh, from another place? Well, from another, I think it, it relates directly to uh, what we spoke about before, that um, God has a plan and, and a, a, a goal where the world is, is supposed to get to. And he gives us freedom of choice to play our part to advance the world to, to its destiny. Um, and uh, we, the choice is ours. So we either choose to be a part of it, or sometimes we decide not to. Um, but that doesn't mean that the plan is not going to get actualized. God somehow will find another messenger or another way 
um, to make it happen. And so really it's, you know, as people, we don't have uh, control over everything. Um, we don't have control over circumstances that we're faced with and, and, and the opportunities that we are given. What we do have a choice is what we do with them. I, I thank you for that. I want to switch gears for a moment. Um, you uh, and all communities um, will observe the holiday of Purim with the reading of the Migilat Esther. But you will also, as will other parts of the community, um, have other um, observances that are part of uh, Purim. Correct. And I'm wondering if you could share with the um, community of listeners um, what some of the other traditions of Purim are. Okay. So I'll, I'll divide it into two parts. There are four prescribed um, rituals and observances that are actually prescribed in the Megillah itself that were instituted by uh, Esther and Mordechai when they wrote the scroll. And these are, number one, that we should read the scroll, and therefore we read it you know, twice, the night of Purim and then the next morning. Uh, we would read the entire story. Uh, number two, uh, we celebrate by feasting, having a feast. Um, it's a celebration of our survival, and therefore it is celebrated in a very physical, uh, physical way, you know, as opposed to some other holidays when we would light candles or meditate or pray. Yeah, this is a holiday that is celebrated in a very physical way because it's the celebration of our physical survival. Number three, we send Mishloach Manot to friends. Mishloach Manot is gifts of food. So here again, the celebration of unity, uh, but unity that is expressed by sending food, physical sustenance uh, to each other to be able to celebrate. And finally, to giving gifts to the, to the poor so that they also could participate in the uh, celebration of the holiday. So these are the four main observances that are actually prescribed in the Megillah that all have the theme of celebration, unity, uh, remembering that we are here today because of what happened in the times of the Purim story uh, and the intervention of Esther and Mordechai. So people in the Jewish world will have three or four opportunities to uh, actualize the story. Um, they may um, dress in costumes to come to the um, um, Megillah reading. Right. Um, they may um, send gifts to their neighbors um, which is called Mishloach um, Manot. And um, often people send multiple baskets or gifts to neighbors to acknowledge their connection to them in, in the Jewish community. Correct. Um, and then there's Matanot Le'evyonim, um, gifts to those who are needy. Mm -hmm. And are the gifts to the needy 
sent either in your community or as far as you know, only to members of the Jewish community or do they extend beyond that? Uh, I mean, typically it is sent to um, the Jewish community because the whole point is that uh, all Jews should have what they need to celebrate that very holiday. So typically, yes, you would see the uh, charity being given or the gifts being sent to Jews in the community. Uh, however, uh, it is extended to the general uh, to the general community as well as uh, as we know that our obligation for charity uh, doesn't stop with the Jewish community, but it extends to uh, the general community that is around us. Wonderful. Yeah, I wanted to comment on, on the one thing that you mentioned, which is the costumes. Um, interestingly enough, the reason why we dress up on uh, Purim, um, and in fact, I went myself to pick up a costume for my daughter uh, from one of the stores here a few weeks ago, and the store owner said, are oh, you celebrating Purim, the Jewish Halloween? <laughs> so uh, it is known as the holiday when we dress up. And the reason why we dress up is connected. I think it will bring our conversation full circle. Because it is connected with the fact that God was, the hand of God was masked in the Purim story. It was hidden. It is the Esther. It is, it is, it is the concealment of God's hand, and so we also, we hide behind the mask of a costume uh, during the holiday of porn. And I suppose um, you can extend that to suggest that Jews in the modern world wear many different kinds of masks about their Judaism. Um, Some, like yourself, are more obviously identified by outward garb as being committed to uh, a Jewish lifestyle. Uh And others who um, do not adhere to the same dress as you and um, the members of uh, Chabad Lubavitch may also be committed to a different, uh, to a a halachic approach to living, but their dress doesn't give it away. Correct. Um, And so Purim is kind of that outward reflection of not only is God's name hidden and God's uh, actions are hidden, but that throughout Jewish history, there's much that's hidden Uh beneath the surface of our survival and our story. Correct. Correct. And I think as well, you know, when we talk about unity, uh, which is also what that holiday celebrates, um, you know, because deep down, uh, however, our external appearances and observances and so on, uh, deep down, uh, the Jewish identity uh, is is a spark that unites, you know, all Jews, regardless of uh, how outwardly Jewish they portray themselves. I want to thank you for that. That's a wonderful place to bring us full circle. I know that the Ottawa Torah Center will be celebrating Purim this year on um, Wednesday evening. Correct. Um, and usually it's the highlight of the Ottawa uh, community celebration. Do you have a theme for this year's celebration? So actually the theme for this year, we're celebrating the greatest Purim. The greatest Purim. The greatest Purim. It's, uh, it's going to be everything you wanted it to be. Uh, it's going to be the greatest showman uh, Purim style. 
Wonderful. I want to thank you for joining me, Rabbi Mendel Bloom of the Ottawa Torah Center. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a rebroadcast of this show as a podcast on iTunes or on the CHRI website. Shalom. Shalom.